Would you meet me in your personal copy of God's Word in the Old Testament book of Exodus? Exodus chapter 34 is going to be a key launching point for us in God's Word here in just a few moments. Blessed be the Lord, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. That's how our time together began this morning. And I draw your attention back there because as we learn more and more about bringing the best in 2024, the glory of the Lord is a focal point for our first quarter of this year. We spent a little bit of time talking about that weighty word two weeks ago. It is from a Hebrew word that literally means heavy. And we read about the glory of the Lord all over His written revelation to mankind. We see the glory of the Lord even on this beautiful winter morning. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 encourages us to develop eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that recognize His glory is on full display in the wonder of creation all around us. Most of us, I'm guessing, when we think of the glory of the Lord, the the first thing that comes to our minds is His creative majesty, His matchless might. Who else could hold the oceans of the planet in the palm of His hands? Who who else could measure the heavens with the length of the tip of your thumb to the tip of your little finger? That is our God. Behold our God, we are invited over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture to behold His glorious might. But we noticed last Sunday, or two Sunday mornings ago, when Moses, who had an absolutely incredible relationship with God, a a relationship that is spoken of in terms of being Face to face. Toward the end of Exodus 33 when Moses is vexed by the behavior of the people and now is being told to leave Mount Sinai and lead this people through the wilderness. He asks God, please show me your glory. And God does not part a sea again. He does not split the rocks of Sinai in half, he reveals to Moses his character. You can see it there in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where even as we have sung together this morning, he describes himself as the Lord, 
the Lord, Yahweh, the one who was and is and is to come. He describes himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But that is not all that he said. When Moses asked, please show me your glory. He continued on by describing himself as a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I've got to tell you, for a very long time, when I would read Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, I loved the first two-thirds. And I wasn't quite sure what to do with the last third, because that is uncomfortable language, if it is true. What do you do with that? I, I wasn't raised to talk like that, and I'm, I'm guessing you weren't either. And, and that begs the question, why? Well, are, are, are we just sugarcoating the parts of God, of His character, that are particularly pleasant to reflect on and share with others, and, and just trying to do whatever we can to make sure that people don't notice the full revelation of God's character? That when we're talking about His glory, yes, we reflect on His might and His gracious character, but when God revealed His glory to Moses using these weighty words, He also talked about righteousness and justice. In ways maybe that aren't all that pleasant for us to think about. You, you go with me a few pages before this to Exodus chapter 20. In fact, this is not the first time that we run across this uncomfortable language. It was right there in his giving of the Ten Commandments. When he says to Moses and expects Moses to share with the people, Exodus 20 verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them for I am the Lord, your God. I am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I'm guessing you could look for a long time in your Old Testament for a weightier phrase than that. And you'd probably have a tough time finding it. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Would you follow me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers chapter 14 and let's take just the briefest of surveys how this uncomfortable phrase comes to be used on more than one occasion, but not just used, but actually exhibited in real life. And I've got to tell you, the next couple of Old Testament accounts that we're going to look at together are not the most pleasant or comfortable passages in our Bibles to look at. But we use those this morning to accomplish two things. First of all, to allow God to speak to us today about His glory. Glory that needs to be respected. But if you will hang with me over the course of the next few minutes, I promise on the other side there is good news. The best news. But in order for us to really appreciate what good news it is, We've got to pass through passages like in Numbers chapter 14 when 12 spies have been sent into this land to which Moses leads the people. They are finally on the doorstep of inheriting what God had promised all the way back to Abraham, to his son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob. That, that promise of a land in which this family line can finally flourish and in fact become a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. Ten of those twelve spies come back and say, it's beautiful but there's no way. We cannot do it. In fact, we have been misled. It would be better for us to forget the covenant we've entered into. It would be better for us to forget all of those things we learned at Mount Sinai. In fact, we think it would be best for us to go back to the land of Egypt and scrape out the rest of our days there. The understatement of the morning is God was not pleased. And so we read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 17, as he is voicing that displeasure to Moses, verse 17, Moses says, Now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, God, do you, do you remember what you told me in Exodus 34? Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Moses remembered what God said. And just as he said, please Show me your glory on Mount Sinai here as everything is about to be lost. He says, please pardon the iniquity of this people. 
according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly, as I live and as all the earth, how did we begin this morning? Shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to, these, to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the Lamb that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. In verse 32, God begins talking to the people and he tells them, As for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years. And shall suffer. Notice the language. Your children shall suffer. For your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity forty years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end and there they shall die. Your children will suffer for your faithlessness. It is a principle that can be Seen over and over and over again. Could I just show you a couple of more? Go with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. A little deeper in our Old Testament. 1 Kings, when eventually this kingdom that comes to be in this land splits in two. And the vast majority of the descendants of Abraham go with a young man named Jeroboam. A man that, well, his forefathers built a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, Jeroboam decides to build two. One at the northern edge of his kingdom, one at the southern edge of his kingdom. And life in Israel is never the same again. In 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 33, where we pick up, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again, from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places, and, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. At that time, Jeroboam had a, a child named Abijah who fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself that it might not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. I, I want you to go to Shiloh. There is a prophet there named Ahijah. 
and he's the one who told me I would be king over this people. And so we need to talk with him. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, a jar of honey. Go to him and he will tell you what shall happen to this child. And so Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose. She went to where the prophet was. And, and the prophet couldn't see. His, his eyes were dim because he was old. But before she got there... The Lord said to the prophet, Behold, the wife of the king of Jeroboam is coming up to you to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. And Mrs. Jeroboam comes, she pretends to be another woman, and when the prophet hears the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he says, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people of Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you've done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Unbearable news. Go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And he did. Jeroboam reigns for 22 years in Israel. Eventually his son, another son named Nadab, begins to reign. And he reigns for two years. Nadab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He he walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. There was a man named... Basha, who conspired against this son of Jeroboam, struck him down. Basha killed, verse 28, in in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and, and Basha reigns in his place. And as soon as he was king, he he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He He left not one that breathed until he had destroyed it. I told you, these are some of the 
darkest narratives in all of the Bible. But would you notice with me why we're told we have it? This happened according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, that prophet Ahijah. This happened for the sins of Jeroboam. And the pattern repeats over and over and over again. Let me show you one more example in 2 Kings chapter 23 in the days of a, a king named Jehoiakim. This is not just a, a problem in the northern kingdom of Israel. It is a problem in the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, this is at the very end of the kingdom of Judah. Many years after these tales of Jeroboam and, and his reign, there is a, a descendant of David in 2 Kings 23 verse 36. 25 years old, his name was Jehoiakim. He, he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Verse 37 tells us, he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that, that his fathers had done. And it was in his days that the king of Babylon comes and, and makes him a servant. And for three years, this Judean king serves Nebuchadnezzar, but he gets it in his mind that maybe now is the time to turn and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to notice the language. The Lord sent against Jehoiakim. Bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and, and sent to them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely, our narrator tells us, this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight. For the sin of Manasseh. Where in the world does Manasseh come into all of this? We've got to follow the narrative of Scripture a little, but Jehoiakim had a father named Jehoahaz who was king before him, and Jehoahaz had a father named Josiah, and Josiah had a, a father named Ammon, and Ammon had a father named Manasseh. You, you see, Manasseh is the great, great grandfather of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is the, the fourth generation after Manasseh. And his kingdom crumbles for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled with Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Why? Because all the way back at Mount Sinai, he identified himself as a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And we're seeing a living example of it right there. 
In fact, we hear it as these people are led into captivity and now lament over what has been lost as they cry out, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless, our our mothers like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more. And here we are in Babylon. Bearing their iniquities. Go with me to the book of Psalms, if you will. Meet me in Psalm 79. Psalm 79, where poetically this extremely difficult time in Israel's history is being described. Psalm 79 and verse 1, speaking of these nations oh god psalm 79 verse 1 the nations have come into your inheritance they have defiled your holy temple they have laid jerusalem in ruins they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth they have poured out their blood like water all around jerusalem and there was no one to bury them We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation Do not remember against us. Your English translation very well may read. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. But I'm guessing you probably have a footnote that gives you a more literal rendering of that phrase. Do not remember against us the iniquities of former generations. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. We are brought very low. Hear us, O God of our salvation, for for the glory of your name. But God, through the prophet, said, I will pour it into your laps. Isaiah 65, verse 6, it is written of me, God says, I will not keep silent. I will repay, I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together. Why? Why would the Lord say such a thing? Why would He do such a thing? Could I suggest to you six simple points? 
He is holy. Psalm 5, verse 4, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. He is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Why would God do such a thing? Because, number two, He means what He says. Psalm 33 emphasizes His word is upright. All His work is done in faithfulness. So much so that the next verse emphasizes He loves righteousness and justice. And yes, here on earth, we, we see that it is full of His steadfast love. But listen to what He loves. He loves righteousness and justice. In fact, in Psalm 89 verse 14, they are depicted righteousness and justice as the very foundation of His throne. Number four, iniquity is serious. His hand is not so short that it cannot save, his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but the same God who revealed himself as a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children said, you need to understand, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And so ever since the days of Abraham, this question has been the question when it comes to iniquity. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He means what he says even in the life of a man after his own heart. Who saw another man's wife and took her and committed adultery with her and engineered the murder of her husband. And when God tells him, your child is going to die, David says, I've sinned. I, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan says, he has put away your sin, you shall not die, but because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Why? Why would the Lord say such a thing and do such a thing? Because he is a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities, but He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But for some reason this morning, Dan came up to the front of this assembly and talked about you and I, 
not having to fear his wrath. Even as the sun rose this morning in our generation, righteousness and justice are still the foundation of his throne. But the reason Dan was able to direct our minds in our observance of the Lord's Supper, emphasizing that you and I don't have to fear his wrath, is because this same Lord who had done what he said generation after generation after generation after generation at just the right time said, my son will pay the price. And so before we're done this morning, would you join me in Isaiah chapter 53 and notice the language that is used to describe God's own Son, that there is something about this news that leads the prophet to say, who, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is something new. This is something strange. This is something different. This is something we have not experienced before. Isaiah 53 verse 1, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? There is a a he, the prophet said, who was coming, who would grow up before the Lord like a young plant and, and like a root out of dry ground. He, he, he didn't have any form or majesty that we should look at him and, and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and, and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice the change. No longer is it going to be that our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren or to the fourth generation our great-great-grandchildren carry our sorrows. No, someone else is going to carry those for us. Someone else, not our children, not our grandchildren, are going to be smitten by God and afflicted. No, someone else is going to be pierced for our transgressions. And, and for generation we have been crushed by the iniquities of our forefathers. But someone is going to come to change Everything. Someone's going to be chastised and we will be brought peace. Someone is going to be wounded and we are the ones who will be healed. On him the Lord is going to lay the iniquity of us all. And you can start on page one of the Bible and you don't ever read that sort of language until here. No, what you read is... Of a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations until he said, my son is the one who will pay the price. And so one more prophecy. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet is moved to foretell days where people won't say any longer, your, 
Your, your fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You ever bite into a sour grape and just immediately get a, a look on your face? That, that's what these people had experienced. Our fathers ate the sour grapes and we're the ones left with the experience. But God says, no more. The days are coming when everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Days are coming when I'll make a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the covenant that I made with I, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt and, and brought them to Mount Sinai. They, they broke their, that covenant even though I was their husband. But this is what I will do. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And Jeremiah 31 verse 34, I'll... I'll forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a, a simple anthem over and over again. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We've waded into a little bit of deep waters this morning. But if you take nothing else away from our time in God's Word, I, I hope you take this. The glory of the Lord is to be respected. His glory fills the earth, whether we see it with our physical eyes or not. His glory ought to fill every human heart. But each one of us chooses to live at times as if we are more glorious than Him. And that's serious. And He means what He says. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And for a very long time in human history, generation after generation after generation suffered because of what previous generations had done. But when God's son stepped on the scene, the only word that was fitting to describe what was seen was glory. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've gathered this morning in the name of this Son of God who died on a cross for my iniquities and your sins. And we're singing this invitation of the Lord, making sure you understand Jesus can pay it all. Sin leaves a crimson stain that nothing, no amount of power, no amount of prestige, no amount of money can wash away. But His blood can wash you white as snow. When people asked how that could be a reality in their own life, they were told to repent and be baptized in His name for the forgiveness of their sins. 
And if you're ready right here and right now to answer that call, we would love to help you. Jesus has already paid it all. If you recognize this morning, all to him you owe. And we can help you. Would you let us know by coming to the front while we stand and sing together?